voyant par chez nous, se sont fait rendez-vous. Ils sont réunis ensemble pour un voyage à entreprendre. Oh oui donc, faites vos sacs pour partir pour le Klondike. Quand le train est arrivé, le conducteur est débarqué. Il dit à nos voyageurs... Welcome back to the American Writers 100 Pages at a Time podcast. In each episode, I look at around 100 pages of the works of great American writers using the Library of America as my source material. Currently, we're going through the works of Jack London, and today we'll be starting a three-part, three-episode series on the Seawolf. So let's start with a quote, a description of the, the major character in the novel, Wolf Larsen. Wolf Larsen did not laugh though his gray eyes lighted with a slight glint of amusement. And in that moment, having stepped forward quite close to him, I received my first impression of the man himself, of the man as apart from his body and from the torrent of blasphemy I had heard him spew forth. The face with the large features and strong lines of a square order, yet well filled out, was apparently massive at first sight. But again, as with the body, the massiveness seemed to vanish and a conviction to grow of a tremendous and excessive mental or spiritual strength that lay behind, sleeping in the deeps of his being. The jaw, the chin, the brow rising to a goodly height and swelling heavily above the eyes. These, while strong in themselves, unusually strong, seemed to speak of an immense vigor or virility of spirit that lay behind and beyond and out of sight. There was no sounding in such a spirit, no measuring, no determining of meats and bounds, nor neatly classified in some pigeonhole with others of similar types. The eyes, and it was my destiny to know them well, were large and handsome, wide apart as the true artists are wide, sheltering under the heavy brow and arched over by thick black eyebrows. The eyes themselves were that baffling protein gray, which is never twice the same, which runs through many shades and colors like intershot silk in sunshine which is gray, dark, and light, and greenish-gray, and sometimes of the clear azure of the deep sea. So that's our description of Wolf Larsen, the, it may, I, I would say the protagonist, really, of the sea wolf. Not our narrator. Um, the, the narrator is entirely different, but the one who really drives the narrative, in the sense that protagonist drives the narrative, is, is Wolf Larsen. Uh, now you could call him the antagonist, too, because in some ways he does do villainous things and acts as a villain, but he's the one in many ways driving this the story. Okay, so as I look, I'm going to look at this novel over three episodes, and I want to focus on just one character each time and try to break down what they represent. In the first, this episode, I'll look at Wolf Larsen. In the second, I'll look at the narrator, uh, Humphrey Van Wyden. And in the final post, which will cover the final third of the novel, I'll look at Maud Brewster. Of course, we'll also take a gander at the other major characters, but mostly just I want to highlight, use them to highlight these three main characters. And in many ways, each of these three people is a dominant figure in different parts of the story. So in the beginning of the story, it's clear that Wolf Larsen is the dominant figure in the story. He's driving most of what happens. In the second part, Humphrey Van Wyden kind of emerges as a major force, not just a passive observer of events. And in the final part, it's it's this woman, Maud Brewster, who who's able to drive much of the, the, the narrative. So I, I think they all have their moments in the sun, but they're kind of set in different parts of the narrative. And as some characters rise, others kind of decline into the into the background. 
Okay, so uh, this, um, yeah, this will be the last novel by Jack London I'll look at in this podcast. Now, unless the Library of America comes out with another volume um, of, of Jack London, there's more than enough to justify this. As I said before, you have like the Scarlet Plague, you have the Voyage of the Snark. Those two, at least, probably deserve to be in the Library of America. But I don't know if they're going to come back to Jack London. Jack London was published like in the first or second year of the Library of America back in the early 80s when it started. And they're now up to like 300 volumes. And they haven't gone back to fill in with Jack London. And there's a few other writers that you get the sense they're, they're sort of done with, like Mark Twain. Um, Melville, of course, they, I think they published everything by Melville except his long poem, Clarel. So there are some writers who are done, but there's other writers like Jack London who wrote a lot more than what's represented. And, and London's certainly not an American writer that should get kind of a half half treatment. But it seems they're done with them. So if that's the case, I won't be looking at any more uh, Jack London stories. Um, and then too bad. But we still, after looking at the Seawolf, will have uh, 25 short stories to, to look at. And I'll look at six or, or seven uh, a time so we'll do that over four episodes so the sea wolf was published in 1804 and it was partially based on some of london's own experiences as a seal hunter um he did that for a while but you know it's kind of far in his youth and there's, there's a kind of autobiographical taint to a lot of his um writing obviously this isn't a full memoir though it's just kind of built on some an experience he really had um as a seal hunter but in many ways it's more of a long philosophical essay on the Nietzschean philosophy of the Ubermensch called the Superman. Now, just to quickly review Nietzsche's view of the Ubermensch, because this, it really is tied to the death of God. You can go to the Wikipedia article on it. There's a whole one just on this concept of the Ubermensch, which you can look at. And I, I just took a gander at it myself not long ago. But the main, it seems to be tied to the death of death of God, the God is dead idea, right? So without one of Nietzsche's criticisms, I guess, of, of most people and most traditions is that although they maybe move away from God um, and even modern philosophy moves away from God, but holds on to these kind of revealed ethics, right? So the example you might get is, is you... Okay, so one Christian belief is that you should forgive your enemies, right? Now, Nietzsche already says that that's kind of based on, it's a manifestation of our own inability to really get revenge. Deep down, we want to get revenge, but we're, we don't feel we're powerful enough or assertive enough or, or have the will to do it. So we create an ethic. We say, forgiving your enemies is, is good, it's moral, and we put that on Jesus and that's kind of what he says about it. But, you know, you get rid of God for, you know, Phil's philosophy doesn't need it, need God anymore. But then you keep this idea that you should, for, you know, forgiveness is a valuable thing, right? But there's no f foundation for this, right? So the Ubermensch is someone who's able to transcend the ethical in a lot of ways and really be someone who can envision, uh, not just envision, but create a new world because they can They can kind of express a new ethical code. They can be the creators of new values. I guess that's that's the point, right? With without God to kind of create those values, you, the Ubermensch is the one who can create those values for themselves, right? And kind of create a new in this moral vacuum that's created by 
the death of God, the Ubermensch can can establish something new, right? And this is almost like a goal for humanity. It's not necessarily an individual, but it, it's it's kind of the goal of humanity, where it can go. And so, now Jack London didn't like this philosophy. He didn't. He, he didn't. He obviously didn't because he wrote this book, The Sea Wolf. But um, he really prefers socialism. He prefers cooperation and solidarity, right? And in many ways, London's entire work over over the you know decades well it's like two decades or so that he wrote most of his work a little bit more than a decade you know in all of his work altogether it's it's this failure of individualism and a failure of of kind of this this Nietzschean idea of of overcoming the ethics right and he's criticizing social Darwinism throughout it because it doesn't seem to get us anywhere good it just makes the world worse more violent right and this was a major theme in the call of the wild and, and white fang Right now, this is a, a more focused philosophical essay because uh, much of the novel is actually these conversations between the narrator Humphrey Van Wyden and Wolf Larsen over these very issues of of ethics and Darwin and the meaning of life and and, and ethics. And there's a really dramatic scene where ethics is is talked about directly. So London's rejecting this philosophy and he writes this book to attack it. And, he, you know, it pairs with Iron Heel very nicely because Iron Heel is this this envisioning socialism as as a better alternative to capitalism. And this this is kind of the philosophical companion to it. Unfortunately, maybe for his own argument is he, he Wolf Larsen is such a compelling and interesting and vibrant character. And Humphrey Van Wyden, at first glance, seems to be kind of a, a wet noodle. He, he's an intellectual. He's physically weak. He's intimidated by Wolf Larsen, but I don't think that's fair. I think we actually see this person develop, and he doesn't have to, he doesn't give up his values when in gaining his independence and gaining his place in the world. So, in a sense, I think in this novel, London is proving through his main character of Humphrey Van Wyden that an alternative to the Ubermensch, to just or social Darwin, brutal social social Darwinism, is not uh, inevitable. So what else to say about this uh, book to begin with? Oh, I, it's been adapted many, many times for the screen. I, I don't know what the record is. I'm sure the Christmas Carol has that. But this book has been adapted 13 times for the screen. Now, I'm not talking about operas that got you know put on DVDs. You know, this book has been adapted into like feature-length films 13 times. So it must really be up there, right, on you know, is one of the most adapted works. And I don't know what's so attractive to people about this. Is it the philosophy? Is it the setting at the sea? I don't know. Like the most recent one, 2009, actually had a budget of something like $19 million. It was a made-for-TV uh, production. That seems a lot to me. So there's been money put in to trying to tell this story. So it's been filmed in 1913, 1920, 1926, 1930, 1941, 1958, 1972, 1975, 1991, 1993, 1997, 2008, and 2009. So pretty much every decade, except for the 60s and the 80s, has its own Wolf Larsen, has, has its own, its own Seawolf. Now, it'd be a really interesting project to go and look at all these adaptations and, and compare them. I'm going to try to watch the most recent one at least, and maybe give my comments on it later on. Um, 
but I, I, I checked out a little bit of it. And it looks like it's fairly um, decent quality and some well-known actors, Tim Roth in it, for instance. Uh, he plays uh, Wolf Larson's brother. Now, I want to use the, the first of these three episodes uh, to really consider the character of Wolf, Wolf Larson. He's a radical individualist. He's totally amoral. He's near psychopathic. Um, yeah, his brother is presented as worse, but we don't really see him on screen so much. Uh, in the novel, he's talked about, and there's encounters with him, but it's, it's all kind of um, when our narrator doesn't really see it. Wolf Larsen is the Nietzschean Superman. He's the pinnacle of the social Darwinian struggle for survival. He has no respect for rank or blood. He forces us to question whether someone can achieve the attractive characteristics of a radical individualist without simultaneously dominating others. Having read much of London's work, there's two examples of the isolated individual. There's Wolf Larsen, the cruel and indifferent tyrant. There's the capitalists in the Iron Heel. There's a few other characters sort of in the, in the stories that kind of fit this category. There's kind of the masters of White Fang throughout his life. So that's one sort of example. And yeah, there's different, I guess I, guess I said that wrong. There's many, there's examples of these, but this is one type of individualist we see in London's work. The isolated individual, and these tend to be very cruel and indifferent people, right? Like the, the masters who couldn't get White Fang's love. Now, you also have Martin Eden, right? Or the protagonist in To Build a Fire, also very isolated people. Martin Eden really has no friends by the end of the novel. He's very creative, but he's, 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 his individual leads him to be very alone. But he doesn't really devote his energies to exploiting or dominating others. The protagonist in To Build a Fire is another one of these types of people. So these are isolated, exploited and relatively expendable, right? Martin Eden is sort of exploited by employers at various times in his life, exploited by the middle class that, that at once wants to reject him, but then wants to accept him when he becomes famous, or the publishing industry. So are these are just two sides of the same coin. Wolf Larson, if not in a situation where his particular sociopathy and brute strength would not aid him, could have easily ended up like a Martin Eden, right? In fact, he has many of the characteristics of Martin Eden. He's an autodidact. He comes from a poor background. Um, now, Wolf Larsen is, is is like a a Scandinavian American by 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 his root. And Martin Eden, his his racial background is actually a little bit ambiguous. It's something I didn't talk about when I when I read the when I read the novel because I didn't notice it at the time. But when I was reading that that book, uh, Jack London's uh, Racial Lives, which I mentioned a few episodes ago, the author there makes the point that Martin Eden's off, you know, kind of presented as maybe biracial, it's got dark skin, or he's not, not, would have been, who wouldn't have been fully white under kind of the one drop rule that was common in the United States at the time. You know, I, I don't remember that as being a factor of it, but, you know, this, this author has spent more time with Jack London than me. As hard as that might be to believe by this point. You know, if if Martin Eden never left the ship and took up a liter literary career, he could have been Wolf Larsen. Or if Wolf Larsen had decided to, you know, he got off the boat at one point early in his life and had a little bit nicer upbringing 
you know, a few more, you know, we met some middle class people. He, he, he had the talent and the, the intellectual curiosity um, to to be a Martin Eden. And they actually read the, some of them the same books. You can see that. And then obviously these are the books I think that were on London's mind. This, this book is not written that far off from Martin Eden. I think they're only like a year or so apart anyways. Let me double check. Uh, nope, sorry. Uh, Martin uh, Martin Eden was 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 five years later, uh, nineteen oh nine. This was nineteen oh four. So the earlier, it's earlier. Now London publishes the Seawolf in nineteen oh four, and it's not long after his time as a journalist in London. So he has the people of the abyss narrative in his head. It documents the experience of this as Humphrey Van Wyden, who shipwrecked, but he's saved by Wolf Larsen and the crew of his ship, a sealing vessel called the Ghost. Now it, it's it's white, so that's how it kind of looks nice when it's depicted on film. Wolf Larson, I also call him Larson, I guess, um, takes him on board, and ex but refuses to let him leave the ship. So early on, Wolf Humphrey Ben Wyden tries to get off the boat, and he actually like offers a thousand dollars to a passing boat, but the, the other crew doesn't want to mess with Wolf Larson. Basically, he says, "You're going to stay here." And the reason why is because Wolf Larsen has an interest in his intellectual work. And he sort of sees Humphrey Van Wyden as an ex almost like an experiment or a, something, uh, something he can play with um, and test some of his theories against. Someone who's not from a working class background, an intellectual, someone who's never worked a day in his life and something Wolf Larsen likes to remind him of often that he hasn't worked a day in his life. This becomes a point of interest for him. Now, Larson is an autodidact. He's interested in philosophy and, and literature. He also wants someone who's dependent on him, and he also wants an ally against his alienated crew. So there's a little bit of Machiavelli in Wolf Larson, you know, because there's going to be a mutiny. It's going to be a major event in the early part of the novel. And most of the crew doesn't like him that much. And so Humphrey Van Wyden is in a position to be dependent on Wolf Larson and therefore be a sort of ally. Van Wyden learns quickly that Larson is a materialist. I mean, he doesn't believe in the soul. A bully, beating up sailors, um, even to the death of some of them. And he has a completely amoral philosophy. And he applies this amoral philosophy to the treatment of his crew. Van Wyden speaks often of, of killing Larson, um, but his philosophy doesn't allow it. Uh, Van Wyden is not able to fulfill this, but he, he often says it would be better to do that. During a battle between Larson and his brother, who, who take, is the name Death Larson, um, to separate the two, Wolf Larson and Death, Death Larson. Now, Death Larson is presented as worse, but we don't see much of him. We don't really see anything of him. Because during this fight between the two, where the two crews are actually like battling, Van Wyden escapes on a ship along with another intellectual who was rescued by Larson, Maud Brewster. They escape to the North Pacific Islands and await a rescue. Lars, eventually, Larson reappears with his ship, but without his crew. He's sickened with headaches and strokes, which eventually incapacitate him and eventually kill him. But Van Wyden and Brewster care for him his last days and then dispose of the body. And then finally, they are rescued and they're able to, to survive on this, this island for, for a bit of time. So there's much actually to respect in Wolf Larson. He's one of the more sympathetic villains, maybe we should probably just call him the villain of the tale, but he's a 
pretty attractive one, maybe anti-hero almost. But, you know, there's a lot to like about him, right? We got to overlook the cruelty um, and exploitation of his crew. And, his you know, his job is basically to savage and brutalize the natural environment, to just slaughter seals. And there's nice descriptions in this book of just what it was all entailed in slaughtering these seals. His worldview does not allow deference based on money, title, hereditary, or rank. In this sense, he's very much an American. He doesn't respect uh, these artificial social distinctions and hierarchies. So he's very individualist. He's an autodidact, too, and that's impressive. He has no formal education, um, and this held him back in some areas. There are certain books he can't really read and understand, just like Martin Eden early on in his career couldn't understand them. But he's turns out to be the intellectual equal of, of Van Wyden. And when they sit down and have debates on morality or the meaning of life or Darwin, really Van Wyden is always on the defensive. It's, it's Wolf Larsen's personality and intelligence brilliance that really dominates almost all of these conversations. He's intellectually curious. He, he also respects beauty. He's, he's caught at one point, like writing up, making up a poem. He seems to find beauty in life at the sea. He's self-made. Like Ahab in Moby Dick, his power over the crew crumbs not from his title or from his rank, but really the force of his personality. Now that's going to lead him to have a very precarious situation. And when that, you know, that personality that is so attractive is also something that makes him really not liked by some of the crew members, especially those crew members that have some self-respect and dignity or at least uh, enough dignity and self-respect to match, partially at least, Wolf Larsen's personality. His atheism, Wolf Larsen's atheism and materialism, ensure that he looks at the world with a brutal honesty that's often lacking in softer, more cuddly visionaries. In fact, there's even something of an Ernst Everhart in him in that this kind of this working-class background, this ability to command the audience, this ability to dominate uh, the autodidacticism of him. Um, now, of course, he Ernst Everhart moves to socialism, but he also has this very kind of cynical and, and brutal view of how the world actually works. He doesn't waver at all in his worldview that got him through life to the end of the life. He doesn't turn his back on it, even though it would have been his advantage to do so at the end. He faces his own death with a degree of nobility, never, never wavering. So he's not one of these people who... You know, as an atheist their whole life, and then on their final day, they, you know, ask Jesus for forgiveness just to hedge their bets. He's, he's a very honest figure. Of course, the problem is how he applies these talents and his abilities and his intellectual freedom. Uh, Wolf Larsen does not seem to be able to move beyond using his individualism and his very powerful personality to dominate those around him. When a sailor, Johnson, challenges Larsen, Larsen brutally beats him. Larson, and then eventually they try to escape. Well, Johnson and another sailor try to escape. Um, I think it's during a storm or something. Um, and Larson just kind of, instead of helping them, lets them go off to sea and presume they're going to die. Larson probably agrees with London on the other futility of cooperation and altruism in a Darwinian world. Now, I wonder sometimes if, if London had read people like Kropopkin, and, and he it would have been around. I mean, The Conquest of Bread and Mutual Aid were books that were 
available to to London. I don't know if we read them. I don't know how widely spread they were in America at the time. But Kropotkin's argument, the Russian anarchist, is that evolution is really a cooperative thing. Natural selection favors cooperation much more than it favors conflict and struggle. And if we look at the most successful species, Kropotkin would say the most successful species are those that were cooperative, like um, wolves are a good example of that, human beings, um, ants, bees, you know, and actually th those that with hive minds do very, very well. And so he emphasizes that and he says, see, it's actually natural section favors cooperation. And then he wrote in The Conquest of Bread that eventually prosperity and technology are going to create a situation where we can have the physical, the material foundation for, for socialism. Right? But I'm not sure that London read this because he, he sees Darwinism as only this individual struggle. He sees it in the very social Darwinian terms, survival of the fittest. And by that, almost individual or group fitness. Certainly Larson didn't read Kropotkin. Quote, I held that life was a ferment, a yeasty something which devoured life that it might live, and that living was merely successful piggishness. Why? If there is anything in supply and demand, life is the cheapest thing in the world. There's only so much water, so much earth, so much air, but life that is demanding to be born is limitless. Nature is spendthrift. Look at the fish and their millions of eggs. For that matter, look at you and me. In our loins are the possibility of millions of lives. Could we but find time and opportunity and utilize the last bit and every bit of the unborn life that's in us, could we become the fathers of nations and populate continents? Life, bah, it has no value. Of cheap things, it's the cheapest. Everywhere it goes, begging. Nature spills it out with a lavish hand. When there is room for one life, she sows a thousand lives. And its life eats life till the strongest and most piggish life is left. You? No, you only mean that in relation to human life. But for the flesh, the fowl, and the fish, you destroy as much as I or any other man. And human life is no wise different. Though you feel it is and think that you reason why it is. Why should I be parsimonious with this life, which is cheap and without value? There are more sailors than there are ships on the sea for them, more workers than there are factories or machines for them. Why, you who live on the land, know that you house your poor people in slums of cities and lose famine and pestilence upon them, and there still remain more poor people, dying for want of a crust of bread and a bit of meat, which is life destroyed? Then you know what to do with. Have you ever seen the London dockers fighting like wild beasts for a chance to work? It's a, a long quote, sorry. It's on page 534 of the Library of America version of the Seawolf, if, if you want to look at it. So Wolf Larsen is in many ways like the global capitalist class in that it doesn't feel his need to justify his actions because they are simply the logical extensions of natural law. That is, you know, the the market decisions that devastate our environment or exploit huge populations of people or or even pollute and, and kill people through pollution and other kinds of uh, things like that. Um, this is just the application of the natural laws of the economy. It's not a moral blame that can go on any individuals in the corporation. Right now, Wolf Larsen, I think, is actually more honest than the global capitalist class in that he doesn't kind of hide about this. He, he says that, yeah, life is meaningless. It's worthless. It's just the way the world is. You know, and 
he's he would say I would be a sucker not to just take advantage of the way the world is. To dream of alternatives where brutality and exploitation do not exist is a waste of energy. But this is also the limit of Wolf Larsen's creativity and imagination. And that's his real failing is that he doesn't have an imagination that goes can go beyond uh, the struggle for survival. And that's the real tragedy of Wolf Larsen because he could have been an Ernst Everhard or even, a, you know, even a Martin Eden who at least contributed something. Wolf Larsen is going to contribute nothing to the world except memories of people who hate him um, and dead seal corpses, you know, in, on the islands of Japan and, and things like that. He doesn't really create anything, but at least Martin Eden, although he shares this individualism, at least he created something. Now, does individualism lead either to be an exploiter who realizes her power over her neighbors or in the exploited? Now, it's I, my politics lead me to believe that individualism is the foundation upon which solidarity and community is, is built. And I think that's the that's partially the solution. I, it's not really a solution that that I think London was aware of. I guess it's it's really the anarchist solution. Right. That's, you know, solidarity is the foundation of of something. But even deeper than that is this is individualism. Right. And as individuals, we seek out companionship and friendship and, and we have empathy for others. But empathy itself is based on individualism. When we see someone suffering or someone having a hard time, we realize that we could feel those same emotions. And that's why we want to help them or have some solidarity with them. Unfortunately, we live in Wolf Larson's world, and in Wolf Larson's world, Wolf Larson will rule. Um, so, Wolf Larson is also a petty tyrant. He's not even a grand tyrant. For all his impressive skills, he can only dominate a very small space, the ghost. In the end, Wolf Larson dominated only a small space. Literally, at the end, he's He's alone. I, I'm actually at this point reminded of the Connecticut Yankee in King Arthur's court when you have someone go back in time, right, to King Arthur's days, brings all this technology. The result of it all, though, is he just ends up trapped in his castle, all basically isolated as well. He dominates only the small space and, and could be easily taken down. Um, in fact, he's struck down by nature in the end, the thing that he rested so much of his philosophy on. Now, maybe this is this could be read then as almost the dangers of of anarchism in that in a decentralized world of free association you're going to have a wolf larsen in every single neighborhood in fact one of my good friends from my time in miami would say this to me all the time right that you need these institutions because what anarchism will lead to is basically you know mad max and uh what's what was the name of morton joe you know, in every neighborhood. So anyways, I, I've been talking all this time about this character, Wolf Larson. And I haven't really gotten into, into details of, of what the, what's in the novel. So I'll, I'll just give you a brief kind of run of the first 13 chapters, or the first 12 chapters of, of the book, the first 100 pages or so. Um, I won't quote too much, but I have a few for you. But mostly I'll just kind of go through the plot. So in a little bit more detail than I gave before. So in chapter one, our narrator is Humphrey Van Wyden. He's on the ship called the Martinez. It's more of a, a kind of a cruise ship. It's a, a ship for tourists for travel. 
and gets shipwrecked. And as the ship's going down, he's nearly killed, but he's saved. Chapter two, we, we fi he finds out he's been saved by the crew of the ghost, right? This is the ship that saved Van Wyden. Johnson, the man who pulled Van Wyden out, warns him about the captain, Wolf Larsen, warns him that he's a horrible person. Johnson is the most important member, one, one of the two most important members of the crew that we meet. And he presents the most clear resistance to the authority of, of Wolf, Wolf Larsen. The origin of this resistance comes from his, his manliness and his assertiveness. I use gender language there, but I think that's what London's intention was. He's the one who's willing to stand up to Wolf Larsen. A lot of the other crew either just are pathetic, passive figures allowing Larson to do whatever he wants and others are just become like lackeys, stooges of Wolf Larson who maybe become violent and just kind of feed off Wolf Larson's violence and, and sentiment and philosophy but not they're not really creators of, of, of any you know they're not creators on this of values they're just copying those of the person who dominates the ship so that's most of the crew but you have a few Really, one John Johnson and is really the one figure of the crew who's able to stand up to Wolf Larsen before Van Wyden comes. Now, Van Wyden feels instant antipathy towards the situation on the ship, seeing violence, and also the violence of Wolf Larsen's language is something he calls out and is bothered by. In chapter three, uh, Wolf Larsen begins to mock Van Wyden as a weak intellectual, and he sizes him up very quickly. Uh, we learn that Wolf Larsen is interested in philosophy, but he doesn't respect intellectuals and who he sees as people who live off the fat of others' labors. And he says, I'll give you a chance to basically prove your worth, to earn your way for the first time in your life by working your way up the ship. Van Wyden, horrified by this prospect and horrified in the conditions on the ghost, tries to escape on board a passing ship. He actually offers $1,000, but they refuse. And Van Wyden realizes that he's entering a brutal world of kind of survival of the fittest survival of the fittest um, and here's what he says in the narrative it's all from van Wyden's point of view it's first person narrative then it was that the cruelty of the sea its relentlessness and awfulness rushed upon me life had become cheap and tawdry a beastly and inarticulate thing a soulless stirring of ooze and slime i held out to the weather rail close to the by the shrouds and gazed out at the desolate foaming waves to the low-lying fog banks that hid San Francisco and the California coast. Rain skulls were driving in between, and I could scarcely see the fog. And this strange vessel, with its terrible men, pressed under by wind and sea and ever leaping up and out, was heading away into the southwest, into the great and lonely Pacific expanse. One more thing I, I think I forgot to mention is his money. He had like $800 in his pocket. 850, I think, and that's stolen by, by crew members. So that's Van Wyden's situation in the first few chapters. In chapter four, he's very depressed about this situation, and he ponders how odd it is that he's been put in a position as a weak intellectual and actually one of the worst in a literary critic. And I wonder if if London picked like the writer that he maybe respected the least as his main character because he needs to build him up from really this weakness to a position of strength and I, I just I wonder if London didn't think much of literary critics and you get this from Martin Eden a little bit that he seems to prefer creators and those who just judge or consume literature so London's point of view I'd be like one of the worst people because I'm I'm just talking about other writers 
He's offended by the habits, conversations, and brutishness of most of the people on the ship, and especially our four hunters. And the four hunters, these are the people who go off and kill the seals, you know, shoot them and beat them with clubs and all that. And he is, these are like the most significant lackeys of, of Wolf Larsen. So he spends one day sleeping with the hunters and he hates it. It's really a horrible situation. Um, Wolf Larsen wants to keep him close though. So he moves him to the cabin and this is when Van Whyden notices Wolf Larsen's book collection. And it's, it's pretty impressive. Uh, what, is, what do we got here? Shakespeare, Tennyson, Poe, De Quincey, scientific works, Tyndall, Proctor, and Darwin, Shaw's history of England, Johnson's natural history, Metcalfe, uh, Reed and Kellogg, uh, the Dean's English were there too. Um, and we know for later on that he read more broadly than just this. Like he's tried to read Herbert Spencer. And they talk about the meaning of life and where man's worth comes from. And, and well, Wolf Larson dominates this, this part of the conversation. Like all the conversations earlier in the book are dominated by Wolf Larson because Van Whyden is, is outclassed in will, not necessarily knowledge, because it does seem that Van Whyden knows more, but just in the ability to articulate and express and, and deliver this philosophy, Wolf Larson dominates every conversation. So on life, this is what he says. He says, it is piggishness and it is life. Of what use or sense is an immortality of piggishness? What is the end? What is it all about? You have made no food, yet the food that you have eaten or wasted might have saved the lives of a score of wretches who made the food but did not eat it. What immortal end did you serve? Today, consider yourself and me. What does your boasted immortality amount to when your life runs follow of mine? You would like to go back to land, which is a favorable place of your kind and piggishness. It's a whim of mine to keep you on board the ship where my piggishness flourishes. And keep you I will. I will make you or break you. You may die today, this week, or next month. I could kill you now with a blow of my fist for you are a miserable weakling. But if we were immortal, what is the reason for this? To be piggish as you and I have been all our lives does not seem to be just for a thing for immortals to be doing. Again, what is it all about? Why have I kept you here? So actually you notice here how close Wolf Larsen actually does get to socialism. He's not that far from, he just can't take that last step to solidarity as the solution to this philosophy. Anyway, chapter six, this chapter kind of gives us a broader picture of the situation on the ghost and the, and the rest of the crew. As brutal as Wolf Larsen is, his crew seems to often reflect the brutality of their captains. And they are products of this same hierarchy of capitalism, right? It's, it's kind of like the, um, you know, piss trickles down the hill problem, right? If, you know, the, you, you have to follow the, the culture that gets created from above in these institutions. I think Enron, right? There was that movie back after, you know, 10 years ago or so about the culture at Enron. And it was all kind of top down from that. Or The Wolf of Wall Street, actually, is another movie that kind of gets us quite well. Wolf Larson asks him about life's values. And, and Larson obviously is of the opinion that life has no objective value at all. Chapter 7, Van Wyden catches Wolf Larsen singing and thinks that this contradicts Larsen's view on life. So we get a moment of Wolf Larsen capable of kind of beauty, but he does it very much in isolation. Again, there's a little bit of Martin Eden in that. And had he got a little bit more education and, you know, put some effort into it, maybe he could have been someone like Eden. 
Chapter 8, uh, Van Wyden begins to paint a picture of Wolf Larsen as a more complex figure. He starts to see him as a more rich person. They play cards, and Larsen wins a bunch of money from the crew. In fact, it's it's more than $800. And it's mostly Van Wyden's money that was stolen from him when he went on board the ship. And Van Wyden claims this money is morally his. So this might be the first time he sort of really stands up to Wolf Larsen at all. I mean, he kind of banters with him philosophically earlier on, but this is the first time he kind of stands up and says, no, that money is by rights mine. And Larson scoffs about any talk of ethics. And this leads them to begin to talk about Herbert Spencer. And when they get into ethics, they start to talk about Spencer. And of course, Spencer wrote this big book on ethics. And I haven't read enough of Spencer to be able to really comment on it. But um, Wolf Larson sort of summarizes what he understands of, of Spencer. And he says, first, a man must act for his own benefit, benefit. To do this would be moral and good. Next, he must act for the benefit of his children. And third, he must act for the benefit of his race. And then the highest, finest right contact, I interjected, that's Van Wyden, is the act which benefits at the same time, man, his children, and his race. So even in Spencer, this philosophy that, that Larson tries to understand does hold out that there's a, there's a higher value than just individual self-interest. And that's what Van Wyden confronts Larson with. So there's an idea here that there is a possibility for moral progress, but Larson wants to reject it. Chapter 9, Van Whiting gets used to being on the ship, and he starts to even enjoy aspects of, of life there. And meanwhile, Larson is always trying to debate Van Whiting into debates, uh, often about ethics, the meaning of life, and all this stuff, and then eventually about theism as well. He tells Van Whiting that it's Christians who don't value life because they envision an inf infinite afterlife, right? If, if you believe you're going to live afterwards, what you, then you're the one devaluing this life. Right now, Wolf Larsen also seems to devalue human life, but he doesn't do it because he's a Christian. But he's just kind of calling out the hypocrisy of Christians who say, well, we need to value life because there's an afterlife. And, you know, I've had these thoughts. I got to these thoughts myself, too, at various times in my life. Chapter 10. So Van Wyden sort of takes on the role of a court gesture. Larson shows Van Wyden his invention. He's, he's invented some kind of device to aid in navigation and, and aid in the complex longitude calculations. And that, remember, that was a really hard problem, mathematic and scientific to solve. Um, and he, he invented something. And this really shows his ability, his capacity. This inspires Van Wyden to ask Larson why he didn't pursue an education and could have applied his talents in a more meaningful life than brutally slaughtering animals. Larson then goes and tells his background and about his really horrible youth. And I, I don't want to spend the time going into this, but it's on page like 559 and 560 of the Library of America version. It's really a, a wonderful description of his upbringing, his relations with his brother, Death Larson, and just how horrible it was. He didn't have an education. He was impoverished, and he experienced the struggle for survival from a very, very young age. So we start to empathize a little bit with Wolf Larson's experience. But in, at the same time, we realize Van Wyden is correct that he has so much talent and it, it's being squandered on this really ridiculous job of just bashing in the heads of seals. Um, I mean, at least Ahab had a mission in life, you know, that seemed to go beyond just hunting whales. He, he had revenge to live for. There's something a little bit more Promethean about Ahab than Wolf Larson. 
In chapter 11, we learn more about Death Larson and, and one of the ship's hands who was savagely beaten by Wolf Larson. Um, is he's, he's Thomas Mudridge. And I didn't mention him before, but Thomas Mudridge is actually an important character in the, in the, in the ship. He's someone who just copies Wolf Larson's brutality. And he picks on Van Wyden early on. He's like the cook. He's like the chef. And, and he's very brutal. He's one of the more vocally bullyish types of people, like bullies on the, on the, on the crew. But he gets savagely beaten. Um, and he's presented as totally defeated by his, his master. And then right after this act of violence, Wolf Larsen ventures into talking about the, I'm not sure how this is pronounced, the, the Rubiat of um, Omar, a, a Middle Eastern poet. And they just begin to discuss that. And he uses this to lecture Van Wyden on the struggle for life. And he says, see, this guy agrees with me. And he does this a lot. He actually quotes the Bible or he quotes other intellectuals and classical thinkers to say, see, they agree with me. And they agree with Darwin, you know, that kind of this struggle for existence is all there really is in life. So kind of these first 11 chapters are just setting up the characters and the situation and, and the plot starts to move in chapter 12. It begins with a massive explosion of explosion of violence that, that begins on the ship. And as I've said a couple times, like things tend to trickle down from Wolf Larsen, attitudes, values, vulgarity and violence. So it begins with Wolf Larsen bringing in Johnson. Oh, Johnson, as I already said, is one of the few people who has a bit of a spine and is willing to stand up to Wolf Larson. And he's basically confronted and says, you don't accept discipline. That's what Larson says to him. You don't expect discipline. And um, he trolls him actually for being too much of a man to accept the discipline on the ship. And as to prove a point, Larson just begins to brutally beat Johnson. Um, and this violence spreads around the ship. A leech, another sailor, beats up on Thomas Mugridge, who actually is, is crippled. He can barely walk um, after this, and he's hospitalized. Well, not hospitalized, but, you know, he's put in, he's in bed for like three or four days after that. So, uh, again, the violence begins from the captain, and then it spreads throughout the other sailors on the ship. Chapter 13, um, Mugridge is given only three days to recover by the captain. And when he comes back to work, he's barely capable of moving. And then at this point, Mugridge bears his soul to Van Wyden. And in this chapter, he tells him how miserable his life has been and how his own past led him to his state, this state. And he's the, he's the kind of the classical bully who has the tables turned on him and then breaks down and, and weeps and, you know, and wants you to sympathize with him, right? It, it shouldn't work. Now, you've got to read it for yourself and decide if it works for you, but it doesn't really work for me. Uh, he's a, st a stooge of, of Wolf Larson. He seems to like this job because it allows him to take advantage of other life and other people and be kind of a domineering bully. But unlike Larson, he's weak inside. And they had very similar kind of cruel childhoods, but Larson becomes a dominating, willful figure, and Mugridge is, is just kind of a pathetic bully. He relishes cruelty only when he's secure in his advantage. And when he's dethroned, he becomes essentially a child. 
So um, that'll do it. That's the first third of, of The Seawolf. Uh, so in the next episode, I will look at the second third, the next 13 chapters of, of the novel, and then talk a little bit more about the arc and the story of, of Humphrey Van Wyden and kind of like I did with Wolf Larson here and give a more detailed essay on him. I'm going to do that with with Van Wyden because I actually think, you know, he's he's you're so enamored with Wolf Larson in the early part of the novel. It's you, you almost get confused, like like I almost wanted to suggest or even I did that he's the real protagonist. That's how he feels in the early part of the novel. But by the time you get to the end, you realize that, that Van Wyden has kind of went a different path. And it, you know, as, as powerful a figure as Wolf Larson is, it's not the way that, it's not the path that London is recommending for us. So that does it. Thank you so much for listening. If you read The Sea Wolf, if you have opinions about it, please comment below um, or share this with others or send me an email at 100pagescast at gmail.com. I would love um, to hear from you. So thank you again for listening, and I'll be back shortly with more of The Seawolf. Il y en avait un autre parmi eux qui a passé pour un quiqueux. Comme il était pas habile pour prendre les chars à full steam, tombant pleine face sur la traque, il a pas pu se rendre au Glendike.